leave a message after the tone. What's going on, guys? I go by the name of Marvin Light. I go by the name of Hassan Shazam. And this is Working Vacation. We're here with our awesome uh, guests, Rootwork. So we got Anwar in the building. We got Yasin. Uh, we want to give a quick shout out first to our sponsor, Red Out Boxing. Uh, Red Out Boxing is a fully equipped state-of-the-art boxing academy located right here in the heart of Scarborough. Um, and it's an incredible boxing facility with boxing classes for all ages. And if, if you're looking to uh, get fit, stay healthy, or build some awesome self-defense skills, Red Out Boxing is the place to be. Uh, they are led by far by the best boxing and fitness instructors in Canada, located right here in the heart of Scarborough. Uh, there's Burlington, there's Brampton, uh, with classes that range from be beginner level to advanced. Red Out Boxing offers something for everyone. Uh, formulated with a perfect combination of boxing strength and conditioning intervals, designed to make you look good, feel good, and leave with more than just a great sweat. Check them out today on Instagram at Red Out Boxing uh, to discover your inner champion. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Rootworks, Anwar Yassin. How are you guys doing, man? It's been it's been a very, very long time. Pretty good, man. Alhamdulillah, can't complain. Yeah, it's been a long time. Alhamdulillah, good, good, man. You know, just trying to, trying to survive these crazy times. Where are you, first of all, uh, where are you guys located right now? Because I know so much stuff has happened. Uh, Anwar, where are you at right now in terms of where I'm you're located? I'm going to let you guys decide where that is. Can you see my finger? For the men that don't know geography, you know what I'm saying? Um, if you don't know where that is, you don't deserve to know where I am. <laughs> don't worry. So, so I don't don't worry Egypt, he said, you're in Egypt. Which part, of, which part of Egypt are you in? I'm in the capital, Cairo. The capital, Cairo. Okay, and then Yasin, where are you at right now? Where are you, where are you at so far? I'm, right I'm back in Scarborough. I came back this summer. I've uh, been here ever since. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, now because it's pretty snowy and cold, but <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a lot of people don't know. So my actual name is Mahad. It's not Marvin Light, obviously, uh, but I've known you guys for a very long time. Okay, um, and you guys had a project. It's called. It's the organization is called the Rootworks. Uh, more specifically, you guys had a project called the Water Project, um, which started what year? Yasin, did it start? Um, I, I think, I think informally, like around early 2017, um, mm. is, is when it started. So I want you guys to, you guys are going to be able to better explain it better than I, what, what, what is the water project? Um, uh, if you guys, if Anwar, I've seen either one of you guys can go, if you guys can explain what the water project is. Anwar, we'll start with you. Sure. Uh, basically, basically, the Water Project is essentially a documentary that kind of tumbled and like snowball affected into a nonprofit organization, uh, like mandated to to build two uh, water harvesting technologies in East Africa. So it didn't start off. It didn't start off as an organization. Obviously, it only became an idea in after the documentary was done in uh, two thousand and. Uh, 2018, I think, was when we got registered. Um, but it actually started off with a documentary, which uh, was shot in different areas of Ethiopia and in, in Somaliland, uh, rural areas, you know, speaking to locals, speaking to nonprofit organizations, um, speaking to, you know, scientists, different mm -hmm. people who have experience about the effects of droughts 
and the different technologies that are used to combat it. So it's just essentially like a research, um, a research expedition. Um, and it's kind of funny. It's kind of, uh, kind of sad at points. Um, I think it's interesting because it's kind of like a, um, you could say kind of like a getting to know us kind of story because like we go through a lot in that story. Like you can watch this on YouTube. It's called the water project. Um, but yeah, it's about, uh, 50 minutes long. Um, and it, it pretty much tells the story of how we uh, decided to to build these these two projects called sand dams. We learned about that. So, so for for people who don't okay, so obviously, so people for people who don't know that don't know, um, and Yasin, you can go further into this. East Africa, I guess, was suffering from severe droughts, right? And what Yasin, you kind of explained is it's not, and Anwar explains to me too. It's it's not that they there wasn't enough rainfall, and there was it was that they weren't, I guess, retaining. Um, that waterfall so people could use it. So can you explain exactly what it, what is a sand dam for people that don't know? Yeah. Um, so I think we, so the way it started, Anwar was mentioning with the documentaries, we were just supposed to go to East, um, do a journey from East Africa to South Africa, just travel. And then before we went, we, we, we see the news and, and I heard from, from, from my family and, and, and Anwar from his as well. Um, that there was like water shortages in the region. Um, and basically, like Mahad, like you said, is drought just means rain coming when it's not supposed to, right? A lot of times, like even me, I misunderstood it as being, oh, rain won't come at all, but it'll be like, it won't rain for two years and in two years it'll rain cats and dogs, right? Um, mm -hmm. So essentially when, when we had went there, uh, well, at least when I went there, I remember it was June, 2017, it was Ramadan. I remember when mm -hmm. it first went there, it was raining a lot. Um, and they didn't declare it as being the end of a drought because just because one month of heavy rains doesn't can't replace two years of no rain of 2015 and 2016. Yeah. But it goes a long way to trying to fix that. So when I was there, we realized we're like, yo, you know, why can't people harvest this rainfall? You know, you just see it like it rains and the rain floods everywhere. It causes damage. Um, there was the uh, Beledwain floods in 2019. I don't know if you guys remember. It was massive on social media. And mm. it's sad because a few months prior, people over there had no water to drink or to grow anything with. And then, and then that same water, when it comes, is destroying homes and literally carrying entire towns and villages away because that water is not being captured properly and managed and, and a whole bunch of environmental problems. But in essence, a sand dam, um, it captures rain um, kind of in the form of sand. Um, so East Africa, for the most part, uh, is dry lands, which means they only get their rainfall in something called a monsoon. I don't know. I'm sure. I, I think that's a term like a lot of people hear on the news and stuff. Um, some yeah, if you can explain that for the, for the people that don't know what a monsoon is. So, so Canada right now, it's snowing, right? Uh, we, get, we get rain, we get precipitation or snow or fog or ice or something 12 months of the year, right? Many parts of the world, including East Africa, get their rainfall in one or two months, known as a rainy season. So what we do as an organization is we come in during the dry season um, and we go to a riverbed because that river has no water because, you know, it's the dry season. And we build a wall, which is known as a dam. And this dam stores sand, hence the name Sand Dam. Um, and underneath that sand is like filtered, clean water um, and yeah, it, it it provides communities with with a sustainable, like stable source of drinking water. Okay, so what inspired? Because I know you guys in the documentary, you guys are talking about the fact that it started off as a travel vlog, 
Was yeah. your intention initially to build sand dams, or was it like you're just with the man dam and let's go, let's go check, let's let's go back home and check it out? We had we started off as a road trip. Um, we were just gonna go on a road trip, gonna travel from South Africa um, to East Africa, um, and then kind of along the way we started thinking, okay, let's let's give back something, right? Let's let's somehow maybe raise money and then build like a well, you know, typical western idea solve the problem but what it, what inspired to to give back like yeah seeing i don't like did, were you guys seeing things in africa where you were like i want to be able to help like these people or uh, oh my, my family like i was gonna say my family is from an impoverished part of, of ethiopia um it's part it's called wallo um they experienced uh droughts at different times i think the, the most famous time was like i think in the 70s there was a uh, something called the wallo droughts which have which coincided around the same time as the tigray droughts which Ethiopia is like really well known for is like the typical picture of an impoverished Ethiopian. I think Family Guy did a piece on that. Um, but around that same time, Wello was going through a drought as well. So, you know, we're not, we're no, nothing new to it. And I knew that, you know, Ethiopia has, goes through these things every once in a while. Um, so I knew that existed. So my, so my land saving with, with uh, Yassine, um, we, we knew the problem existed, but we were kind of desensitized and kind of detached from it. So we're like, okay, if we're going to go to these places and, you know, do a whole Africa vlog, Let's do the typical, you know, fundraiser, raise a couple of thousand dollars and build a well, you know, take a couple of pictures with some, you know, some starving children. Some and then this is the way it, maybe maybe I can yeah, Sin can speak for himself, but I really wasn't thinking in terms of like like the scale of what we ended up doing, nothing near that. That wasn't even on the horizon. Like it was just like I was just trying to go on a road trip. I went to a road trip when I, in 2016. I, around the states, I loved it. I loved the idea. So I'm like, let's do that on a greater scale in Africa. So that was the main idea. Anwar, Anwar is 100% right. It just it, like we never had any intentions. And the thing is, me and him and Hussein, we've had this conversation multiple times, trying to like piece together what happened, when and where and how and why. But it, it just it just kind of happened. So we 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 decided to do the documentary before we went. Um, so. While we were in Toronto, we started um, seeing the news, and then we we said like, "Yo, let's let's try to do something about this." And I think, like Anwar said, it's like you don't want to like the bro. The plan the plan was just to visit places, you know, go to Mount Kilimanjaro, go Zanzibar, go Cape Town, just have fun. Literally, that was uh -huh. what, our, what our goal was. And then I guess once we were seeing a little bit of the news, you know, one of us, someone on the team, like we we're all just like, "Yo, this is what's going on." You know, maybe maybe we can do something a little bit on the side. And then eventually it evolved into, I guess we're doing an entire vlog, a longer vlog centered around this issue. Um, and we did a little fundraiser on um, on GoFundMe. Um, and we uh, we basically told people like, hey, this is what we're trying to do. Um, we have money for our tickets and for our flights and for our own accommodation and everything. We just need help buying camera and sound equipment. Um, and Alhamdulillah, people were very supportive, minus one guy. Uh, on no. Facebook, who who commented that we're paying, he, we that we're asking for vacation money. <laughs> <That's> crazy <laughs> because you know throughout all the years that Alhamdulillah, like hundreds of people have just donated money to a bunch of strangers and kids at the time. You know, maybe now we're a little bit older and more experienced, but more the more I think about it, is like they donated to a photographer, a film student, and an engineering student who weren't even graduates at the time, who had no mm -hmm. track record, who barely spoke their home language. But you remember that one guy on Facebook who said these guys are scam artists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's, that's human psychology, I guess, right? Yeah, that's that's human psychology. It's it's always interesting because when you see 
you're doing good things, you know, if you people, people never bad. And people all, if you're doing a good thing, a lot of times people will bat an eye about what the intention behind it is. Um, but it was only one guy on Facebook, so it's not that bad. You know what I'm saying? I'm pretty sure you guys. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good level I, as far as reviews go. Us, by the way, we didn't even defend ourselves. Like the comment mm. section went, went at him. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Got you. Got you. So your reputation. Okay. So your reputation stood for itself. So Alhamdulillah, I know you guys very well because, okay, so you guys came back from your vlog. Um, uh, and interestingly enough, I think I met you guys around that time, right? And I met Anwar through Sufyan, um, and, uh, uh, and Aliso, Aliso brought the idea of an office space. So you guys wanted to get an office space, which was basically a lot of us wanted a place where we can work away from home. You know what I'm saying? And just get away from the noise. And in that space, I was trying to create like video content skits. Hassan obviously came there and you yeah. guys were building Root, the RootWorks organization. And I just remember like 10 men fam in a small room <laughs> and we all shared a room, but it was, it was amazing. So you guys came back and you guys wanted to obviously do the water project. That takes a lot of money. So the idea was of course, to build, to create a documentary, right? So I want you guys to take and Anwar, I was literally side by side with you because Anwar, you were doing a lot of the editing for the documentary. Hussein was providing a lot of the photography. And I know Yasin at that time, you were trying to get as much sponsorships as possible. You were like the, the business manager in that front for the organization. But I want to take it back to the documentary because the whole point of the documentary was so that you guys could raise as much money as possible. So Anwar, I want you to talk about the, that documentary because I know that that, that ish was tedious at you learned so much even in that process. And I learned from you as an editor and it was, it was amazing. Yeah, definitely. I always say like that, that was my film school, right? Like even though I, I did go to school, I would say like in terms of shooting, I learned everything, almost everything that I know now from that whole experience of shooting the documentary in, in Ethiopia and, and, and in Somaliland. And then the whole, my whole like experience of editing was in editing the documentary. So this, this documentary was really like my film school. Um, in that, like, I learned what not to do, what's like, you know, how to work with the program, when it crashes, um, you know, what the limits of the program that we were using to edit um, was on, what the best, like, schedule to work is, what best times of the day it is to work, you know, it's just like a million little things. Um, but, but, but specifically, specifically what I want you guys to speak on is just like, delivering that documentary, because you guys, there was a night there was one particular night the the documentary was complete right and you guys had a viewing of like how many people was at the viewing i seen it was like 200 300 people anwar oh man it was close to, it was between four to five hundred it was a Fourth lot of people. so you I guys about the, the, about the, are you talking about the premiere the premiere, the premiere. The premiere. So you guys created, you created the documentary and then the premiere i want to take it to the premiere what was that night like you guys had like 500 people there all of these people were seeing your work for the documentary and the goal was to raise as much money, money as possible. Anwar, you can go first. Take us, take us through that night for you. And then Yasin. <laughs> so like that for me was literally the peak of my whole experience with, um, with, with the documentary up until that point, because that was the culmination of, up until that point, that was early 2019. So that was the culmination of about two years of work where I wasn't really doing anything else. Like I was, everything else that I was doing in my life was as the second, as a, like a second class thing 
for this documentary. And we finally got to show it to all these people who we've been, you know, promising and, and pleading with and fundraising from a little bit on the side and, you know, begging from really realistically um, for two years, you know, and finally it came, came out that night. And I'm not going to lie, a real nigga teared up. You know? <laughs> if you're in the background, you heard some sniffling, man. Nah, just, just keep it moving, you know. Don't watch that. It's not, you know. <laughs> It was a good, it was an amazing moment for me. Very, very emotional, you know. And Yasin, on your side? Yeah, Yasin, on your side? For me, I've never felt so much anxiety as I did that on that one day. SubhanAllah. Like it was, there was just so many things that could have, and, and to be very honest, should have gone wrong. Um, but I, I, I think, Alhamdulillah, like I think with mother's dua and, and, and you know, trying to do, trying to do things the halal way and having barakah in your work. Um, I think, you know, I think that's why it worked out. Like, I remember I went to the, so the night before, um, I was cleaning up translations and we were at the office overnight. Um, Anwar had uh, a allergic reaction to something he ate. Um, mm-hmm. and then he had to go home. So I ended up staying at the office, I think, until like 4 or 5 a.m. that night. I remember that night. I actually remember that night. I remember that night. You, you were there, I believe, as well. You ended up leaving there. a couple hours before I left. Um, and there was a massive snowstorm that day. We go to the location. Um, everything was a mess. Literally, everything was a mess. Our, our, you know, you know that little square thingy for donations, that white thing um, for, for processing payments? Um, that was not set up. That was not working properly. Um, our volunteers had no clear instructions on what to do. We got to the place, our documentary's not there. Anwar calls me. He's like, yo, I just exported the documentary. There's like a 25-minute block in the middle that's all black, no audio, just audio, you know? Um, and just everything was just like completely shambolic. I didn't eat anything that whole day. And I remember praying Maghrib, and then I went to the washroom, and I come out, and I see hundreds of people. In like a 10, 15-minute span, it went from, I went upstairs, and there was like 60 people downstairs, like downstairs, lined up. I came back and the line's going outside the door. And I'm just like, yeah. like, why are these people not being allowed to go inside? I remember I paid somebody. I'm like, Let, get these people to their seats. Why are they waiting out here? They're like, the seats are full. I'm like, huh? What do you mean the seats are full? <laughs> and, and I just remember like for the first time feeling like what physical anxiety is like. I remember my stomach having knots and ties and, 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 and Anwar really saved that day, to be very honest with you, because I know both myself and Farah fumbled the bag heavily. I folded, you know. What, what um, do you mean he saved the day? What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? What so do you mean? the capacity of the hall is officially 385 or like 400. We decided, which, which thinking back to it right now, good intentions, bad execution. We decided to make a prayer space at the hall. So we told them to move. So if this is the hall, we told them to move the screen forward this way. And this became a prayer space. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't like, I mean, a few people did use it, but it wasn't utilized to its potential, um, you know, because it was only usually like 10 people praying at a time. Like we thought it would end up being a big Jama'a. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but w- the hall was full and there's like 100 people waiting outside. And we're like, what do we do? And was like, let's put a screen behind um, like a small TV there and they could just use the audio from the hall. So I don't know if you remember, this was the main hall. This was the screen and there was a bunch of people behind the screen watching watching it on like a 50-inch TV. Uh, and then we had to yeah. pack it on the other side and side. And now with COVID, that wouldn't even that wouldn't even be possible. 
You know? Oh, no, no, no. That would not be possible. I, I, I remember that night vividly. I remember when Ahmad first brought me by uh, your office. Uh, I think it was Nugget Avenue, Nugget Drive, something like that. Yeah. 55 Nugget, 55 Nugget. 55 Nugget, 55 cool. Nugget. Um, yeah, no, it was uh, compared to that space to what you what you transformed it into. And I remember both of you guys were like, I understand, you guys were all over the place that day. Uh, and I didn't even, I didn't even like want to bother you. I could just tell, like, you, your mind was like in a hundred different places. You're just like running yeah. here, you're running there. This person's with you, that person's with you. If you can get this person in, it's like, all right, you figure that out. You figure that out. Here, here you go. Um, but I think the 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 full scope of it, I got to like really experience once I once you know the the, the documentary I, st- I actually started playing and I got to see your vision play out. I was like big enough the because he had seen the process up until that point. He was he's telling me behind the scenes like, yo, I'm, I'm telling you. This is a real thing. This, this this is fire. Like you're gonna you're gonna love it. And I'm not gonna lie. I was I was engaged from the from the from the from the first minute um, that I that I started uh, like you know just paying attention to your message and everything that you guys were trying to do and putting in the work because there are moments in in the documentary a lot where, of work a lot of the work right. So there are moments in the documentary where you know you you're being told like you're asking these questions. You're concerned. You want to know more about. The drought and the situations and the, the health complications that is creating for the people that live in, in in East Africa, and it was crazy because they, like they would respond to you with like, yeah, these are these are what we think are the solutions, or these are what we think we need some help on. But they were kind of almost seeing you as like people who wouldn't like you were just talk like you were just talking to talk like you'd be gone like pretty soon and you wouldn't come back or make good on any of your promises or stand on your word or or any of the plans that you were making to try and help these communities like because they've heard this type of talk so many times before from other ngos other groups and stuff like that i find it really commendable you guys stuck on that and and it's just as you said three three students three three students who aren't even graduates yet did what a lot of ngos uh pump faked on so yeah but there was there was a lot of help you know what I mean? Uh, and I want you guys to speak particularly about how important um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was for you guys and your deen in this entire process. So Allah Anwar, because obviously Not there was a, a ridiculous amount of work that went in, but you know, Alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he, he, there was, there was, he provided so much help to you guys in that process. A lot of Yasin, you kind of alluded to it. You said a lot of things shouldn't have went right. You know, it should it should have went actually wrong, but a lot of things clicked. So, if any of you guys want to kind of comment on that, how important, how integral Allah Subhanahu wa Taala was in the process for you guys, and even executing the project all the way through. Definitely, like a hundred percent. Like in me, I remember in the beginning, like there was a lot of times that me and Yasin and like we would sit, and, like we would make like du'a that Allah would keep us on the straight path with this, because in the beginning, our 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 intentions were were pure like we were literally just doing this for what we said we we're going to do it for you know just to help people as much as possible we weren't trying to benefit nothing uh, from it um, and we didn't eventually like even in the end but um, we made a lot of like intention intentional like making sure that you know our intentions are very are very clear and very pure from the beginning um, and, and that, yeah, that, Anwar, that must have been hard because and Yasin even like that must have been hard because at some point in time, by the time the premiere hit, bro, you guys were like, I was so proud, but it was like almost like it was an NGO, but like you guys were like, 
stuff mm-hmm. like that. You guys are like rock stars in a way, you know what I'm saying? Like stuff like that, you say that. But, but it was just, was the- there were so uh- many people that were on you guys and there was so much spotlight on you guys. How difficult was it to keep that intention pure and maintain exactly why you guys, like why you guys started off? How yeah. difficult was that? Did you, have, did you have to keep checking your intention, rechecking your intention to make sure you're doing it for the that- right reason? checking our intention but that was done more like more than one between us because like one of the beautiful things that 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 um helped us stay pure was that all of that attention that you're saying right now because you guys are talking about like the premiere the premiere is like wow so much attention but that was literally like two years after like two years worth of work that was shown on one night so it didn't really get a chance to hit our head during that process so we didn't get inflated egos and we didn't like think we were the shit because we literally did not do any, like, I feel like we didn't do anything until that night. That was the first night that we actually like proved a little bit of what we wanted to do up until that was all theory. Like people just gave us money. People were like, okay, yeah, do whatever you will with it. And we took that as an amana. So we were just constantly working hard, hard, hard. Like we have to pay these people back. We have to show them something. Like we have to show them we're not, you know, we're not like these, you know. You're not trying to finesse. You're not trying to finesse. We're not trying to finesse, you know. So we were just working with that that we have to prove our worth. Um, so we it didn't really, we didn't have a chance really to for us to get into our head. It was only later on that we started to get a little bit of recognition. But even then, really, it was like we were always working. We always kept that amana like in our mind, you know, that responsibility. So, so, it, so obviously the premiere, mashallah, was a. Uh, you seen anything you want to add? No, 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 no. Yeah, no. So. So, so the, the premiere and Hassan, if you can always ask questions whenever, will I? Uh, but the the premiere obviously was a is a massive massive success. A lot of people donated a lot of money. It was it was an incredible experience to even be a part of. Uh, me and Hassan were obviously there. So now you got the money, you got the money. Alhamdulillah. The next step was execution. So how did you get from getting the money to actually? What was the next step? You guys are trying to execute it. Like, how difficult was that? You guys got slammed with COVID, obviously. Um, so you get the money. Now you guys are actually physically moved to Africa. Yasin, I think you were in Somaliland. Or, uh, and, and, and Anwar, you're in Ethiopia. You have the money. What's next? What's next is, you know, trying to, um, you know, like Anwar said, there's an amana, a trust placed onto you by complete strangers. Um, and it's, it's trying to fulfill that, you know? So what's next is we went to, initially we went to Kenya in September, 2019. Um, and we were, we went to this amazing organization called Africa Sandam foundation. They operate in Kenya. Um, and they operate in other countries as like, kind of like a consultant, they've built over a thousand of these, um, supporting a million people. And what we love most is we love their approach. Um, First of all, the whole organization is local Kenyans from top to bottom. Um, secondly, they all partake in physical labor. Um, and when the dam is being built, it doesn't matter if a guy is just an accountant or if he's just, a, you know, the construction worker. They're all standing side by side, working really hard together, getting the community involved in the community. We're not paying you guys money. We are going to give you guys food while the duration of the work is going on but you have to provide labor because this is your dam. You own us. So they're giving communities confidence. They're giving communities, um, you know, inspiration and capacity building and teaching them that you can help yourself. Nobody can help you as much as you can help yourself. And we Mm -hmm. try to pull that philosophy within our organization. 
Um, and, you know, it, we did have some difficulties translating that to, to Ethiopia and, 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 and Somaliland, just because the context is different. Um, I think like what we learned is, at least for me personally, and Anwar can speak on this as well, um, is that Kenya has a very strong sense of community um, in the countryside. Whereas, for example, Somalis are, are nomadic people. So it's a very individualistic society. So it's a lot harder to, 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 to like parachute into somewhere and build a community and build a sand dam versus parachute into a community, uh -huh. build a sand dam for a community that already exists, that already is very cooperative with each other. And united. Like, and united. Like Somalis yeah. have very strict definitions of like land ownership. It's like, you know, it's like so-and-so owns this land. There's no, <laughs> no sense of communal land. So why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? It, it's a... uh, it's because of the it's because of the culture. Somalis are nomadic people, right? It's each person, you know, he has him, his animals, and he just wanders and he grazes and he has a 10 kilometer square area. It's my land, don't set foot in here. You know, yeah. all the grass here is mine, all the trees here are mine, you know. Um, so it's like try try it's it's a very the other thing is it's a very harsh climate, it's dry, it's you know, there's a, it's just like it's a very harsh climate and 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 i believe pe people's personalities are developed like historically i would say part of it is 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 their climate is their geographical location you know you go places like um somewhere let's say like bangladesh for example or parts of india places that have good fertile land there's a large population large families kind people for the most part but then you go to the mountainous parts of let's say india for example in the himalayas for example this that that guy's probably not very much of a nice guy because he's fighting for his life every single day. Yeah, he he oh. really has to put his foot down. That that for someone who lives in a desert, it's not the same as somebody who lives on a nice farm in you know in I don't know Switzerland, for example. You know, a few hundred years ago, like it's I feel like geography really. Um, I, I'm personally always have been very interested in geography, um, and one thing that I, I've always haven't been able to pinpoint, and I'm sure there's a lot of books and research on this, but I think people's personality certainly their physical features are defined by their their where their geography is so you'll see for example i noticed when i was in indonesia and philippines people have their feet are more like their feet are more wide enough and they're really good at swimming you know and then you go to east africa and it's some it's 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 the part of the world that's least densely populated there's large land and guess yeah, who's flat, flat guess land who, yeah it's yeah. flat land guess who's the best um long distance runners in the world Kenyans, Ethiopians, and Somalis. Some of the tallest people in the world as well. South Sudan. Some of the tallest, South Sudan, yeah. You know, so I guess essentially, sorry to, to get back to the question, my my point being is it was very difficult to translate that type of philosophy into our into our projects there. But we spent a lot of time researching for places. So me and Anwar kind of went on a wild goose hunt. We established partnerships with NGOs there first got our permits in order, got registered with the governments. And then it was talking to, you know, our local partners and tell them, look, we're looking for X, Y, Z. We're looking for a river that looks like this, that has a community established where we can build a sand dam. And they were like, oh, say less, I got you. And they'll go take places. And more times they take us to places which were not technically feasible, unfortunately. But eventually, alhamdulillah, we we're able to finish one of two. Um, and yeah, that's where we currently are. Where, 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 where is it, uh, the, the current one that's located? Like the one that you guys completed? Uh, it's in Ethiopia. So uh, it's in the Somali region of Ethiopia, a city called Jigjiga. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. Um, I know Jigjiga. It's, yeah, it's, it's just outside of Jigjiga. Um, so Anwar had found that site. 
um, and and we he was he was managing that project for the most part, and, and alhamdulillah we managed to complete um, construction in December of last year, um, and. There was a lot of delays that we experienced because of COVID. COVID really hit us pretty hard, to be very honest with you guys. Yeah, talk um, about this. Yeah, talk about the realities of what that must have been like. Yeah. It hit us at a time, I'll let Anwar jump in on this too. It hit us at a time when we were like, we were just like, just about to cross the finishing line. You know, like we were like, so in terms of timeline, we went there September 2019, um, all the way up until March, it was just preparation and finding a site. Once we finally found a site, we brought the, fo the folks in from Kenya. We brought them to both Ethiopia and Somaliland. Ethiopia, they said, this is perfect. We can build a dam here. The Somaliland one was a little bit more complicated, but we still could have gone forward with it. And we were planning on completing construction before Ramadan of 2020. Like we were going to mm -hmm. bring it back to Jig Jiga. 10 days construction, no long talk. We're cranking it out, right? Mm -hmm. Pandemic hits. And then that just got delayed by like, eventually ended up getting delayed by nine months. Um, and Somaliland, it was a lot more difficult to find suitable sand dam sites. A lot of times when I'd find sites, it didn't have a community settled there. It didn't have a community established there or anyone living there. Or um, a community to maintain it. Or a community to maintain it, exactly. Um, but we eventually found a site and, and we're planning on building one soon. But uh, that, for me, for me, COVID was just like, it was really difficult because like, it put us just like in limbo. You know, and you don't know, there was no certainty. There was no, you know, and I'm sure that's a feeling everyone has experienced. Um, but yeah, it was certainly not easy. No, that, that I, I think that's eye-opening as far as the perspective. Because, you know, from when you were first filming the uh, the documentary and finding your way into all these different places. And it's more of, you know, who, what context do I have in this place? What context do I have in this place? All right, I'll make it over here. I'll make it over here. Versus, you know, uh, uh a situation where it doesn't matter who you know at what place like it, their their safety is at risk as a result of this of this thing right so um that that every that pretty much has the world on, on on constant in and out of lockdown so i guess in in my a question that i wanted to been wanted to ask you guys was uh and this is directed to both both you and uh yasin and anwar uh whoever wants to take it over um or will go first after after the completion of the Jig Jiga sand dam um, and, and everything went through, it, it was working, the community was able to take over and, and you know, keep, keep its operations like moving. Um, what was that feeling like of seeing something that you, an idea that you guys were discussing amongst your team, financing for, um, dealing with all these uh, investors for finally come to fruition? Like it, it's real. You can you can palm it. You can see it, um, and there, the community that it was intended to benefit is actually benefiting from it. What did that feel like? Whichever one of you want to go first. I think yes, you could probably talk about this more than I can. I haven't. I had to leave Ethiopia basically um, a couple of weeks before before construction. There's no other feeling like it. You know, like see, it's like a business, right? Like it's almost like a business. You start you start a business from scratch. You have a couple of years where you're losing money. Um, you know, maybe employees might be leaving this and that, and then finally start to turn a profit. And then maybe you hit that mile, that first milestone. That's, that's kind of the way I see it. It's like, this is, this is a successful business. Finally. Alhamdulillah. 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 Yeah, no, um, it was, <clears throat> I think, I think again, it's similar to, you know, what Anwar was saying earlier about, um, there's two, two years of work that go in 
prior to you seeing any results. So once the dam com construction was completed, so it was about it was about it was about thirteen or fourteen days, um, you know, full days, sunrise to sunset, hard labor, um, and you know, we we as an organization had to set the pace um, because if I'm not standing up working, that means that they get to take a break too, you know. So it was it was it was really probably the biggest, um, I think, the biggest test I've ever faced was was those was those two weeks. Um, just because it was like, it was, it was, it wasn't even just a labor. It was just like, it's the mental battle of, of keeping going. Cause it just gets to a point where you're not even tired anymore. You're just, you're just like <laughs> bodies, you're just broken. It's, it's all about in here. Do you that have mental fortitude, fortitude, that mental, mental fortitude, fortitude right? Um, and once it was completed, I, I think I just, you know, you just look at it you're like, oh, alhamdulillah. Okay. That was good. That was nice. You know? Now I can now I get to leave and go back to Hargeisa and sleep on my bed, and you have to wait for the rainy season, you know. So we waited a few months. I ended up going back five six months later, and that's when I really saw like the, what the impact of what we had we what we had done was. When I had first visited the community, and this is our on on our blog, our I believe our fourth vlog, yeah. um, which called "Searching for Sites" or "Searching for Sandams." I would check. Mm -hmm. I would really suggest everybody to go check that out. Um, you know what the people used to, you know how people used to drink water is like so they go so i don't know if you guys understood what i was saying earlier about a seasonal river like um mm -hmm. we have the humber river imagine if the humber river was dry for 10 months of the year and then in the middle in the middle of the dry season you come and you build a wall basically right mm. we went there in the dry season and people will, would take like a uh, like a saucer or like like let's say like some like a large cereal bowl and they dig a hole in the ground and they just like scoop up water like that. And the water was like brown mm -hmm. because there's sand in it. There's a donkey right next to there, which, which is how people transport water that is, that is sitting on the floor and that's seeping into that water. And it was taking hours and hours just for one person to collect water because, because they dig a hole, they wait for the water to rise up and then they scoop up a little bit and they have to keep waiting. When I went back, there was multiple wells that people were drinking from. So that was very nice to see. People would just like go like this with like a hand hand well. Beaver, yeah, the, yeah. And the water would come out like this, and it was nice and clean. I, I drank it myself, and alhamdulillah, I did not get sick. You know, that was the true test. I was like, yo, I got to test this out myself. You know, mm -hmm. um, so I, I I stand by by like by that to the to the core. I firmly believe anybody from the west goes there and drinks that water, they're not getting sick. And if they get sick, it's because someone made the the hand well dirty <laughs> not the water itself right it was it was going back and seeing the community drinking that water and, and and for them to have um something they could do quickly was it was like it was a surreal feeling wallahi to be very honest with you um I, you know so alhamdulillah alhamdulillah what would you tell yasin and anwar uh, like to the diaspora uh how important it is like what was your experience actually being in africa i know anwar is still in egypt you know drinking his camel milk you know yasin you were there for a very long time i know you're probably going to go back but i, I really want to get into what was your experience you guys lived in basically toronto i would say uh, for a lot of your lives and you guys got a chance to, to live in africa and so many people that i've known who live in the west and they go to, to africa it's, it's like the best experience they've ever had and they don't want to leave Quite frankly, so what would you guys say to the diaspora in terms of your experience when it came to Somalia, Somaliland, Anwar currently in Egypt and Ethiopia? Um, yeah, just 
like I'm, I'm just blown away by how easy it is you know for the longest time like i was kind of afraid or kind of i had the impression that it was like an impossible thing you know it's, it's something that like white people do you know well like, like if the way i see it man, if, you, if you have the intention and you are able to compromise on certain things not everything not to say that you have to like live in a village somewhere but like certain things you're willing to compromise on it's doable for like 90 percent of the people who who want to do it you know so if you really want to do it and you think that the benefits outweigh the the negatives for a lot of people they do there's a lot of people living here in egypt that are from different places in the west you know but how does that feel like like i bro part of the podcast i think i heard the azan anwar from your feed like yeah what is it like to hear the azan what is that like to be able to hear like for people that don't know that then is the the call to prayer in islam like what is that to be able to hear an entire city where you hear the then and like you know just your experience being in a place like that where i i've heard people are so much more genuine there like when they talk to you like fam, they actually care to hear how you feel whereas here everything is so fast-paced yo you miss on you actually miss mm-hmm. out on life uh it's an addiction man like i, I was so I was living in Ethiopia for a year. Then I came to Egypt and I lived for like a year, uh, like 10 months. So it was a good, like, you know, good, almost, what is that? My math. Uh, 22 months that I was away from Toronto before I went back to Toronto. And then when I went back and I was there for like less than a month and I didn't hear the Adan, because I, I was listening to the Adan for that entire time in Ethiopia as well as um, in, in Egypt. Egypt. I was like, damn, you guys are actually out here just praying by yourselves in your little tiny cubicles in like you know in your little spaces or wherever you are little apartments you know praying by yourself or maybe missing a salat here and there like that's such a big deal you know like it's it started to be i started to realize you know just how much how much i've come to normalize that and being here and and how much i i appreciate it um but yeah i don't want to like i don't want to give the impression because I, I feel like a lot of times people they they, they they like they make this they make the, the the muslim world or whatever you want to call it africa to be like heaven or the answer to all their prayers they, they, they make the west like hell in their mind but it's not like that i feel like there's still there's still definitely dishonest people here there's still um you know a lot of problems here there's still a lot of people who will trick you and cheat you and disrespect you and you know won't give you your due um but as a whole like as a as a picture if you weigh everything um you definitely get a lot more out of like the people here and out of life here um and then you do in, in the west personally like i have what, what about you yasin your your experience in the west versus you know versus living out in africa you know what i'm saying um okay so for me it's a little different because i was i was born and raised in qatar um i moved to canada in 2005 so i was 10 years old at the time so i've i've experienced what it's like growing up in a, in a Muslim country. And I used to visit regularly because because my, my parents lived there. Um, Africa, I think for me, was was extremely eye-opening because I've, I've, never, I've never had, um, uh, you know, like how these spoken word artists say, oh, the feeling of home is so fleeting or whatever, you know, whatever it is they say. Um, it was the first place I, I went to and like, I felt like, you know, like, I belong here, you know. Like when I, when I was in Hargeisa, like it's it's like like people look like you, like you guys. People look people look. I mean, people don't look like me because of the glasses and because of the beard and because of just a lot of things, like the way you walk, the clothes you wear. They know you're you're 
you're you're a diaspora and they know they start treating you differently so at the beginning it was uncomfortable and then because of the organization i started going to the middle of nowhere where even people in the city had never been to so people would bring me smoke and i'd be like yo shut up bro have you ever been here no you haven't so don't talk to me they're like oh this guy's okay you went there too say word i was like he's like yeah man he's like i'm from there i've never been there i'm like all right man don't talk to me bro i know more about your country (laughs) after that you get you know the um, the stamp of approval the stamp of approval right um and it was very eye-opening because there's a lot of business opportunities over there um yo please please talk about that please talk about that because yo for and i say get into this whenever but for me like being in the West, being in Africa, I'm East African. I've, I've lived in the West my entire life. I've never been to Africa, but we get programmed. Like you see me, I see the camel milk jokes to thing. I talk, I do the third world jokes, but it's like, it's sad be, in reality, to be honest, because it's just like, yo fam, we're just, we're just programmed here to think of bare poverty, bro. But there's a lot of wealth. Talk about that. Cause I know even Somalia, Somalia, I think ranks one of the highest countries to, uh, one of the one of the highest that it has the most amount of money going into a country right but talk about the business side of africa and 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 what that that's like because i know you you are in business your family's in business talk about that um well i mean to start 10 out of the 10 countries with the fastest growing economies six or seven of them are are, are african the country with the highest growth rate in the world like economy wise is ethiopia at almost 12%, 13%. That might be different this year because of some of the instability there. Um, but Ethiopia is growing at a wild rate. And by default, so is Somalia. So is Somaliland because, you know, Ethiopia is a landlocked country. So, for example, Somaliland, our whole economy is based on selling goods to Ethiopia. Um, I didn't know that. As well as remittances, as well as remittances. Like you said, people sending money through to Habshil, um, World Remit, and, and, and other applications is how Somalis have survived. The last 30 years of having no government and and you know civil war and drought and famine and all that kind of stuff but in terms of business opportunities think of any okay right now um with when i when i was um you know one of the biggest things that helped us with rootworks is i was a i was part of an incubator at my university at uoit in oshawa mm-hmm. and that incubator provided us with funds they provided us with contacts they provided us with most importantly tools and information on how to like establish a business and i mean for the most part i was the only one going there because i'm part of the university anwar and hussein are not going to come all the way to oshawa but they came there for a one-two event and and i don't know if you remember anwar but the, like the information and like the type of tools that they provided in starting a business was was incredible and the resources that they said and the number one thing that they suggested for businesses here or that's necessary is like what is your big idea what's your unique idea you have to have a unique idea that doesn't already exist that's not the case over there. Think of any good, any service, any product. Either it doesn't exist or if it exists, people are being ripped off for it and being provided a very poor quality version of that. You see what I'm saying? So over here, if you want to invent something, you have to invent something. Right now, if I want to start a company, there's like 20 people already doing it. Unless I'm creating something new, you know? That's you're, not talking about in Tor- you're talking about in Toronto. You're talking about in Toronto. I'm talking about the West in general, yeah. But like, yeah. let's say specifically Toronto, any business you want to do, you know, somebody's already doing it for the most part it's or, you have to find, or it's saturated or you have to find a new angle. You have to have what do they call a new value proposition over there, bro? You, 
you could like start anything and 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 you'll and you'll make you'll make you'll make money but it has to be like but the other thing is like now what's oversaturated market there is what trading everybody with two hundred dollars goes to dubai or china buys a container full of things and there's still opportunities to do that by the way don't get it twisted i know people who bought a 40-foot container of clothes for like seven thousand and they take it to the Ethiopia border and flip it for 70. Just like that. Just like that. Hold on, hold on. My 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 people will talk to your people after after this podcast. I didn't I didn't it's, know that. That's USD, by the way. It's not Canadian dollar. It's I didn't USD. know that those kind of opportunities exist. We'll we'll talk after this podcast. We'll, we'll continue. continue. <laughs> Come here. I'm looking for investors. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's actually uh incredible like the fact that because so many people don't even realize it like i said i don't know if you want to add anything particular. no yeah it's, uh, it's just more so to reiterate um because yeah so many people just push you know uh continue with that stereotype that there isn't um anything in africa that um there aren't any uh opportunities and things like that and i just think all over the world uh that that narrative is changing like colonial history or let or controlled history is changing as far as like that being like the accepted norm uh there is stuff in all these other countries uh outside of the west that they do have natural resources they do have uh, a lot of business opportunities i think that's gradually changing even with like you know countries that were former formerly you know going through colonialism asking for, for reparations or want to remove themselves business-wise from from uh some of these colonizing countries um i think in general just that, that sentiment is changing and it, and it shows for people our age to talk about because when we were younger i didn't really hear stuff like that um or it wasn't popular to talk about stuff like that so uh, i think well, it's a good trend like it's you're definitely right when we were younger um you know there's a lot of negative sentiment yeah but i mean a lot of it is is not also wrong like Somalia is a, we've been a war-torn country for since 1991 for 30 years we've just been fighting and killing each other um and this is the first time where we're having some sort of stability and peace and the growth rate of like man like when i first and Anwar can attest to this um when we first went to Hargeisa because he there was the first time i spent a lot of time there he was with me in 2017. Mm-hmm. we compare 2017's growth to like to now or when we went back in 2019 it's it's substantial you know, there's a lot more homes, there's like more, um, you know, restaurants, there's more like, there's, it's just like, it's, 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 it's growing at a very, very fast rate. And that's Mashallah. an unrecognized place with no exterior investment and a whole lot of corruption and a bunch of thieves and crooks. So it's like, imagine if this country had, you know, some sort of like, you know, decent makers that are not crooks, you know? Sorry, and say that again. Decent policymakers, you said, right? Decent policymakers that are not that are not making policies to line their own pockets. I remember there was a book I was reading this past summer. I can't remember what it was called, um, but essentially it was a book on. He was giving the example of El Paso, Texas. El Paso has El Paso, Texas, and there's El Paso, Mexico. I think it's called Nuevo Laredo. It's in, okay. it's in Narcos. I don't know if you guys have ever watched it. The Juarez Cartel. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah but he was saying in el paso the average pay on the american side for a cop he said was four thousand a month dollars or like five thousand a month and then on the mexican side it was like 25 times less right 
what's the difference between these two places? There's literally just a fence in between them. Nothing except for policy. One place has healthcare. One of them has banks and institutions that worked for people. And then on the other side, there's rampant corruption. So it was very interesting reading that because I was reading that at a time as well when Rootworks was having some, we were having difficulties with COVID, with resistance from, from locals and communities and not finding locations and just, and you know, trying to keep your intention pure and motivations. Like it's, you know, you're, you're a human being. Sometimes like you're not ready to grind as much as other days. Like, you know, um, I'm sure you, I'm sure you guys have experienced that with any initiatives you might be involved in, whether it's this podcast or whether it's businesses you're involved in. Sometimes your motivation is like crazy. You can't be stopped. You don't even want to go to sleep. And then some days you wake up, you're like, I don't want, I don't want to abundance, <laughs> you know? So yeah, that, that's like, essentially the countries have gone to a point. I know, I'm sorry. I know I took like a long. No, no, no. Uh, this, this, this is good. This is good. It's good. But it, like policy has changed. Policy has improved. And a big part of that is the internet because people over there before in 2001, they didn't know how people were living in the Middle East or how people were living in the West, you know? So people are seeing TikTok and people are seeing things and like, yo, why, why can, why can, why can, why can people in, 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 in Canada have sidewalks and I can't or proper roads? People are starting to hold their politicians to account and changes are starting to happen as a result, which is why you're seeing all these business opportunities that you're hearing of. And we weren't hearing about it when we were younger and when we were children, if, if that makes sense. There's a lot of opportunity, like uh, Asina is saying in terms of um, bringing stuff no into the country and, um, and doing like a lot of uh, trade within the country, like in terms of import. And that's definitely the bulk of it. The bulk of the business comes, it's obviously out in, right? That's why we have such huge uh, deficits when it comes to foreign currencies. But there is a lot of opportunity, which I, I feel like maybe the new wave is, what, is what's going to be, that's what we're going to start seeing in the future um, when it comes to exports as well, because there's um, a lot, there's not enough people in that, right? And kind of part of the reason is because it's a little bit more difficult um, and there's less, I guess, um, less people doing it right now um but that also means in terms of business the road less traveled is obviously the most profitable road right if you're able to be the one of the first people out there doing whatever it exports it is um you know whether it's agriculture or whether it's textiles or manufacturing whatever whatever it is that you're doing if you're exporting it number one the government is behind you a lot of these governments i can only speak on behalf of ethiopia i'm sure somalia has some some sort of uh, policies as well um, the government is behind you because it strengthens the country's economy. Um, it's a lot easier. Uh, it's a lot, uh, not in terms of, I mean, there's less competition for it. So it's easier in that sense. Um, and you have the connection, you coming from the West. This is the thing that a lot of people in the West don't, I feel like capitalize as much is that they go back home and they do the same thing that they've seen. They build the Uber, right? They build the chicken shop. They, they, they build the, like, whatever it is that they've seen, the dollar store. Um, and they, that's kind of like the cookie cutter option, but you can also um, physically like build, um, like start a company, like start your own company. You don't have to outsource it. Start it in Ethiopia, start it in, in Somalia, build whatever it is that you're going to build, furniture, clothes, um, whatever it's going to be, your, your product, and then ship it in the West, right? Because you have those connections. So it doesn't have to only be outsourcing, which is like you have a company in the West and you're using the labor in, in back home. You can actually start the company back home and do the whole process and just sell it to the West. Anwar's mentioned, you know, manufacturing. My, my family is actually in, in manufacturing. Um, yeah. So we, we manufacture 
um, concrete blocks, you know, to build homes. We make these outdoor concrete tiles. We sell um, limestone aggregates. Um, and I'm, I wanted to make this point because it's 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 funny because you know I'm I'm someone who's involved in the NGO and charitable side of things, um, and I like to think that the work I've done has had a massive impact. But if I can if I can you know kind of like compare that to the work that my family has done, for example, the family company is right now employing close to 200 people. These wow. 200 people, um, a lot of them are starting to build homes. Some of them are buying cars now. They're paying taxes. All these guys, they take their money and there's a restaurant lady across the street who all these guys buy food from, right? That lady is sending her kids to school. These people are sending their kids to school. If it might be very possible that that uh, venture and that endeavor is having a bigger impact and and supporting more people long term than than our work is, which was a very interesting realization to to come to at, at times. You know, kind of, you know, I don't want to say painful or annoying, but like just like kind of throws you off. It's like what well, you're telling me that someone who is here just to make money is having a bigger impact than I am. You know, it's kind of crazy to think of it that way, but people don't need charity. People need employment. People need a way to make their own money. That's the only way you're going to get people out of poverty. That's what I've learned. And that's what I've realized. And that's the most sustainable thing to combating poverty and helping our countries and our people grow is by you also creating you know, jobs. Like there was, there was a lot of times I can't speak on Anwar's behalf. I could speak on my behalf. There's a lot of times I was burnt out. You know, because we're volunteering for this type of work. And, you know, sometimes the thought will cross your mind. It's like, yo, I, I'm a, I graduated in mechanical engineering. I have friends right now who are making eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000. You know, it's like, that could be me. Um, you know, and sometimes Shaitan will tell you, he's like, yo, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> are you wasting your time, bro? <laughs> yeah, whispering, whispering you in know? your ear. But essentially, what's a, what's a sustainable solution to poverty in these regions, as weird as it sounds, is businesses. People go back home, invest hire your your hire relatives hire friends that you have there and 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 that's that's how things will change this person has a full-time job now guess what they can they can support their family you know mm -hmm. so yeah i just wanted to add that point no it's a, it's a it's a phenomenal point because i think i was speaking to you guys i know i would remember it but i think i was talking to you guys about that when it came to like rootworks because i really wanted to be a part of rootworks um like earlier on, because I was like, yo, the business side would be huge, right? Because imagine you guys are asking all of these people for money, but like, let's say you're asking businesses and they use this as a write-off, you know what I mean? Um, they would 100% give that money out, no question, right? And then on top of that, as you said, business has such a, uh, a huge impact because it's a, now you're an economy, right? You're impacting people by giving, allowing them to have a livelihood um, and then that livelihood doesn't just impact them. It impacts their entire family. It impacts their community because that dollar is going to be spent in their community. And that obvi and then obviously that circulates how it circulates, right? Um, so you guys gave some beautiful excerpts about that. But I wanted to transition into probably the last and final topic. So talk about how important it is as a man to be fully accountable to yourself, not just financially and like, but the because if you're accountable to yourself, if you're doing the things you're supposed to doing, I feel like, because what happens sometimes with these generals, a lot of men is just like, yo, look at her, look at her, look at her, right? Which is extremely problematic because I feel like 
it falls on men to, you know, not only just provide financially, because as you guys can imagine, there's so many dudes that provide financially, but they're also not, you know what I'm saying? Taking care of their women in, in maybe emotionally, you know, maybe, maybe physically. Like, I want you guys to talk about that, how important it is for young men, you know, inshallah, to try to get married sooner and be able to be accountable to themselves because the more accountable they, they are to themselves, the, the, um, the better, the, the better they improve themselves, the better quality of women they will naturally attract because they reflect to you. So I want you to talk about how important accountability is for men. Yeah, Well, you know, I heard, I seen um, exactly what you were just saying right now. I saw a tweet about this the other day. Um, someone tweeted, he's like, in order to get a woman nowadays, you have to have, um, you have to have a car, a crib and a job. And then a woman quote tweeted him and she's like, do you not want these things for yourself? And that tweet that went viral. And it's very true. It's like, damn, damn. Like, damn. no, well, nice. like, like, <laughs> <clears throat> I was like, I was like, damn, that's kind of out of pocket, but where's the line? I don't think that was out of pocket, though. That was real talk. That was real, it's real talk. talks. Like, it's like, genuinely, do you not want these things for yourself? You know, so I feel like people just need to focus on themselves, man. Try to become the best version of yourself. Like, Earn, earn, go earn a lot of money for you before you go do it for someone else. And then you will attract what you want to your life. It will come. But the problem is people don't want to do that. People are lazy and they'll go on the internet and they'll slander women. And then there's women that are doing the exact same thing. I'll be honest. It's like the whole mindset is flipped. Yeah. It's so, it's such a, and, but the important part is like, this conversation is not a worldwide conversation. So don't look at the experiment and say, this is the norm. The West is an experiment. All these conversations you're talking about, the fact that this is a topic that we have to talk about, uh, you know, shows that we're living in a weird, like, in a weird world, but it's not the whole world. It's our little world. It's how we think of the world. But these are really like, it's like going to another part of the world and say, what do you think about gravity? Like, what's your opinions on gravity? Really, what do you think? Like, if you drop an apple, do you think it'll go sideways? They'll be like, what, is this what you guys are talking about? Like, this is what fills up your days? You know, this is the same conversation. There's this video on um, that went viral on Twitter where this woman, she's a reporter, and she was talking to some, she was talking to some Redmi guy, like a guy who's a nomad. He's a camel herder, right? Mm -hmm. And he has a lot of camels. And camels are worth a lot of money, by the way. These guys are rich. Don't get it yeah, twisted. Yeah, you're rich. Don't get it twisted, yeah. They're worth like a bat. And the guy will have like two, three hundred, four hundred. You could do the math, you know? Um, and basically the lady tells him, she's like, She's like, uh, she's flirting with him. She's like, oh, uh, how many camels would you give for, to marry me? He's like, oh, you're a very beautiful woman. I'd pay a lot. And then she's like, how much? He said, oh, I'll give you 10, right? And then, and then she's like, well, how about 100? And then he's like, which means like, am I buying you, you know? And mm. she started laughing and she's like, you know, she felt really stupid because it's true. It's like, uh, you know, am I, am I, am I purchasing something? Um, but like... I think I think I, there was um, Anwar was talking about how um, it's not a conversation that's being had all over the world, and this conversation is only it's being non-productive. It's not it's non-productive. Like it's forget about it being productive. It's it's a completely wrong premise to even be having a conversation on. But this exactly. this is this is where I see the problem. I was watching John Wick three yesterday, right? And I don't know if you guys have ever seen John Wick. They have like I have a they have I the have... high table, you know. They have the high table or whatever. You know, and John Wick is being chased because he broke the rules. He killed someone in the Continental Hotel, right? And they're asking, why are you punishing him so severely? And the high table, who are like these 
crazy group of assassins who've existed for hundreds of years and are seen as, you know, holier than thou. They said, we have rules. Why do we have rules? Because rules separate us from animals. It's the rules are what make us humans. And that's exactly what has happened. Is the rule books been tossed and now we're no better than the hayawan. And that's why, that's why you'll see people that have no hayat. There's people that have no self-respect. But sometimes, you know, think about it deeper. People have no respect for their, their parents and for their elders. Look at, look at yeah. what happened with COVID. Look at the outbreaks we had in senior homes. Do you think this is a problem that would have been happening in anywhere else in the world? No, it wouldn't. Because you don't have a bunch of 90-something-year-old people being taken care of by strangers. Where are their children? Their children take care of them. And, that, and that's a huge, huge difference. Because you know, people here, they, they just get, they put their parents in a, a nursing home and they forget about them. Which they is forget the saddest about thing. Because they took care of you when you were completely vulnerable. And the mm -hmm. cycle of life is when now they're old, they're vulnerable. It's your responsibility to now take care of them. Look at our, look, exactly. Look at our financial system. You know what? You said, okay, we'll start playing with interest. Look at this now. Everybody's just printing things. People pay with their phone. You just go tap, did it? And then you can pay a credit card however and whenever you want to. It's, it's just ridiculous, man. You know, this whole financial system is going to collapse. Maybe not within our lifetime, but eventually it will. Because things used to be backed by actual gold. And now it's just, you know, now it's the conspiracy theorist in me is coming out because it's going, I'm going <laughs> I'm sorry. You, you guys but... made a mistake. You, get, you guys opened a, 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 the door. So, yes. <laughs> but but my, point, my point is, like, I was watching the movie and I'm like, that's so true. What separates us from the animals? Rules, roles, positions, responsibilities. Um, I want to bring it back to what uh, Mahad was saying very um, just a, a few minutes ago, because I feel like it's a very important topic about self-development and um, right. So like, I could not agree with this more. Like, I, I feel like nobody should, um, nobody should be on the lookout for, you know, getting married or, or get a settling down unless they've really sat down with themselves and really come to terms with what they want and what are their, what are their goals, right? Because once you get married, you're literally attaching your life with somebody. Like you're saying, inshallah, like unless something happens, this is the person that I'm going to see you through to the end, unless something happens, right? So how can you do that unless you make sure that you're, what you are as a package are, is like is the best that it could possibly be? Not saying that you have to be perfect, obviously. Nobody's going to be perfectly ready to get married. But there are certain things that you, ha you can't be having like massive deficiencies, which you've been ignoring for your whole life. And you're just like, yeah, I'll deal with it when I get older. Certain people don't know certain things about themselves before they get married. Yeah, that stuff will catch up to you. Yeah, if you don't. In a big way, it. like you're making, you're creating life. Like you're creating kids and you don't know anything about yourself. And, and even you know? worse, even worse to quickly, quickly piggyback about that. A lot of times you have that honeymoon phase sometimes, you know what I mean? And a lot of times I've seen this in, a, in actually like, um, like an Islamic video where it's like, a lot of times you don't even know fully about that person and you're getting married with them. You know what I mean? And that's why Islam is incredible because you get to, you get to sit down with the people that know them best. You know what I mean? And actually get to yes. evaluate that's why it's them. family to family. It's yeah. family to family. So you get to fully figure out, yo, Bredgen, who is this person? What, you know what I mean? When they get mad, how are they? You know, how are they in the house? Like, what kind of person am I actually marrying? Because that transparency is everything. You know, because you can get married and now all of a sudden you're like, yo, Bretchen, I didn't even know this person. Like, I, I yeah. thought I knew this person, but I really didn't even know this person. Yeah. And that's that's literally that's not even a surprise. That's literally what is going to happen. That's the recipe 
that is literally the product of what happens if you get married and you don't know who you are. Because if you don't know who you are, you don't, you're not asking the right questions of that person. So they might answer all of the questions that you asked correctly, right? And maybe they gave you the, all the answers that you asked, but you didn't ask the right questions, right? So now you married this person with this big gaping hole of maybe you don't agree with. Nothing's, maybe it's not an evil person. Maybe she's a good person. You're a good person, but you're just too massive, like vastly different people. And you didn't have that conversation beforehand. So now you're heading down a path where you're going to crash. Like that's where it's going to happen. It's going to happen to crash because you're two very different people. And you didn't know enough about yourself to have that conversation with her, um, you know, previously before you got married. And that's a lot of what happened with our parents' generation, right? Of people getting married in their, you know, late teens or early 20s escaping a war not knowing anything about themselves saying let's just oh this is somali let's marry somali Halas, you're a part of my clan i'm gonna marry you oh you're ethiopian let me marry you Halas, you know i don't know anything about you but i don't need to i just need to know that you're you have all the major things ticked and then we'll deal with it later on and then you know 15 20 years later six kids down the line nothing works out how many of our parents are, are you know ended up in divorce but i don't want to like say it's all doom and gloom i just want to say it's very very important to know who you are and it's different for everybody. But ask yourself the major questions before you tie the knot, before you even open the door of getting married. Do, do you know, yeah. that's, that's one big thing, but Yasin or Hassan, obviously you guys can comment on this. One thing I learned, to be honest, in any relationship is you need something way bigger than you, which is God, that, you know what Absolutely. I mean? When, that's, it's, it is, bro, it's integral. Because if you don't have like, if you don't have a lost one with Allah in your relationship, it's like, bro, when time get tough, and I'm not out here talking like Kevin Samuels, like I've been married. I'm not married. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, but it's just like, bro, God is so integral in your relationship because when time gets tough, it's like, you know, you got to be able to say, you know, I said this because of like, it was, it was a shaitan. Like you got to be able to charge that to the game. You know what I mean? Or you need something bigger than you to be able to forgive this person, you know? For the sake of a lot, even though sometimes they might piss you off, you know, that that is obviously something um, that's incredibly important. And obviously, the, another thing is even like being able to keep everything in house. You know, I used to be a chatty mouth. Fam. I used to be like, oh, my God, yo, this is happening in my life. And like, what do we do? And like, Shorty's amazed. I know I know that specifically, it, you know, like in life and it's everything in your relationship has to be like you got to be able to a point where God is. The, the pinnacle of your relationship and the ability to be able to keep everything in-house is another thing as well. But I just want to say one thing before. I, I'm sure Yasin has a lot to say about this. There's a beautiful hadith that's um, been quoted many times by people that, that are interested in getting married. They hear it over and over again, but it touches on what you said. It's basically the prophet said there are four reasons, four main reasons that people marry um, is for beauty, for um, for uh, Nesab, which is like somebody's lineage, right? Somebody has a big family, uh, important family. Um, somebody has, so it's money, so it's beauty, money, Nesab, and Deen. Is Deen is the fourth one, right? Somebody's, um, their faith and their their trust in Allah and all of that falls under Deen. And the Prophet Sallallahu said, um, take, marry the person for Deen. And it's so important, Wallahi, because every, every fitna that the dunya can give you will be handled if she has her Deen. And like, if she doesn't, well, it's, it's literally like it's over for you, man. Because like the smallest thing will shake it. Well, hold on. But also that you as well have to have your dean as well. Because it's a two-way street. Yeah. It's a two-way street because, yo, she's 
she will have her dean and it's important because that's the mother of your children and obviously she's going to be the number one teacher for your children but again as a man that accountability it's like fam like you get what you put in fam if, if you're a person who's naturally religious if you're a person that puts allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first it's like it's like that person if, if i bought a if i bought a uh uh mitsubishi lancer a ferrari whatever type of car a jeep now all of a sudden all i see on the roads fam is let's say jeeps you know what i'm saying because my mental is focused on that but if i'm a person that's about my dean if i'm a person that puts trust and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then Allah is going to obviously bless you with the woman that you deserve. So it comes back to the man. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. If, if you're about it, like, you're, you're going to find the right woman. You know what I mean? And that's and that's why I say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is the pinnacle, you know, and that's and that's I'm, I'm learning, you know, so. But Yasin, what do you, what, what's your thoughts, man? Um, I think, um, like, you know, as as a as a man, like when when there's a nikah in Islam, um, the father or the wali of the person, you know, if our father's not alive, if it's a brother, an uncle, sibling, whatever whoever it might be, right, or just a sheikh, someone, they're they're giving their daughter to you, which means on the day of judgment, you are responsible for this individual. This individual is not responsible for you. It's not this. It's not. It's not like. It's not the same. It's not a two-way street. It's not a two-way street on that in that department. So, people need to consider that before they have these arguments on going fifty-fifty or all these other things, like just arguing with an individual. If a person understands that, that their their your role and responsibility is ensuring this person's health, the safety, financial well-being, and all of these things, then honestly, everything will fall into place. Um, and my second point is Abu Huraira, the mosque, is having a conference on Muslim identity this weekend. Um, and it started yesterday evening. And I'd highly recommend you guys come out. I'm going to be there tonight as well, inshallah. Um, and yesterday, Sheikh Mu'tasan, who um, is a personal mentor for me, a friend, and, and someone who I really, really admire and, and, and look up to and have a lot of love for, was speaking on identity. Um, and, and bear with me for a second, because I, I kind of want to make the point that he made yesterday. He said... The term identity is a Western concept which has never existed in Islam and has never been a conversation that has been had prior to the last 50, 60 years since Muslims started living in the West, right? And terms like the self, self-esteem, all of these things are extensions of what your identity is. And he said identity, according to psychologists and social scientists, there's three ways people define it. Some people define it as a collection of your memories and past experiences. That's the first one. That's what your identity is. Or it could be um, your your aspirations and future thing. You know, like I aspire to be, let's say, for example, a doctor. That person identifies as a doctor, for example, right? Or an influencer, or whatever it might be. Um, and he made the point of saying your identity is composed of the things that you love, right? A doctor or some a lot of people... Well, some people identify based on their looks. They love how they look. And that's the only thing. That's why they spend millions of dollars on plastic surgery and all these things that could literally kill them, right? Because it's their identity. It's what they love. Some people will put themselves completely into an occupation, into becoming a filmmaker, a doctor, an engineer, I don't know, a football player, a basketball player. That's their identity, 
right? And he's saying what a person actually needs to do is they need to center their entire life around loving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's how you develop a Muslim identity. There is no such thing as a Muslim identity. It's not about wearing a thobe. It's not about having a beard. It's not about, you know, yeah, obviously praying your five salahs is, is, is about that. But he's saying, like, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that we were not created except, the humans and jinns were not created except for what? To worship Allah. There's no other reason. And worship in its essence is what? It's love. It's ultimate love and devotion. Allah can love you more than your mother. Like, that's crazy. You know, your mom like will literally die for you, right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you worship him because you love him. And because you love him, you love the things that he loves, which is good things. And you will prevent yourself from doing these evil things. And there was a sister who asked a very interesting question. She's like, can it be shirk? Shirk is like associating partners with Allah for me to love my children like crazy. And he's like, that's a very good question. And he's like, no, because... Allah loves for someone to have love for their children and their spouse and their siblings. And Allah loves for us, for example, you know, you'll hear people say something like, you'll hear Mashaikh say, you can get reward for playing sports. You can get reward for going to the gym. Why? Because Allah loves a strong believer, someone who's fit, someone who takes care of their body. Allah loves business. The Prophet said that business, tijara, is the peak of all actions. Like, you know, you're being told, yo, secure the bag. <laughs> because Allah loves wealth. Allah loves someone who works hard. Allah loves someone who does, who does these things. And that's why by having a love for Allah, you can, you can get reward for trying to become the filmmaker that you want to become or the doctor that you want to become or whatever it is that you want to become. So but, but, the intention, but the intention I'm assuming is you're doing it for the sake of Allah. That's exactly. the intention. These are exactly. expressions, expressions of love. These are expressions of love, exactly. So uh, that was just something that I heard yesterday evening and, and just really left a profound impact on me. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it's also playing online. So if you guys physically can't make it, I would highly, highly recommend you tune in, inshallah. Um, so, I would pull up, well, I have a KBW is doing one this weekend as well. I don't know if you know KBW is doing I do. one as well. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Yo, so I, I got a great relationship with those guys. I got, I got to pull up, but inshallah, I'll see. Uh, uh, Anwar and uh, Hassan, I'll let you go first. Any any closing remarks? You gotta make a No, I, I uh, honestly, I'm just, I just, I just feel blessed to have a conversation with uh, with these guys. I know they were, uh, it was, it was very hectic time for them when they were making the uh, the documentary, and then obviously when they were putting uh, the the premiere together. So uh, I, I felt it was prudent for me to kind of like you know, pay my respects, but keep, keep, keep like a little bit of distance just so that they can get what they need to get done. Um, but, uh, I have a high level of admiration for the work that you guys have done and are, uh, continuing to do on, on whatever levels, uh, you choose to going forward. And, um, I'm just really happy we, we got to, we got to have this conversation. I got to hear your, your in-depth thoughts on the, on the behind the scenes making of, uh, of your journeys. Uh, up to this point so uh thank you thank you very much for uh for talking to us yeah alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. We, we salute you guys i know anwar has become a cat woman he has 12 cats in his home now and he's drinking goat milk <laughs> i'm just kidding well it's all love i love i love you guys uh yasin i'm gonna actually make a conscious effort if you're there tomorrow abu Hareda, what time is it tomorrow five to eight okay tomorrow i'm gonna be there for sure you know what i'm saying um so, but alhamdulillah uh, we appreciate you guys. I want to welcome you guys to the to the Working Vacation Podcast. I go by the name of Marvin Light. I go by Hassan Shazam. 
And we're and we're missing the boy uh, Mohammed Mustafa today, but he's going to be a part of the next one, inshallah. And uh, credible interview with uh, Rootworks. Peace. That's Peace. about it, guys.